listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, thank you for your patience with how long it's been since we last put out an episode. I took a short break from recording and editing during August, but I'm excited to be back with you all. In the last 21 years of working in the world of grief, there are two questions I get asked over and over. The first is some version of, what do I tell my child when someone in their life dies? The second is, how do I help my friend, family member, colleague, neighbor, etc. now that someone in their life has died? That question is really tough to answer because people need and want different things in grief. And grief feels horrible. And there's not really anything you can do or say to make it less horrible. We usually strive for something that will not make it worse, rather than trying to make it any better. Zach Week knows more than most about what it means to try to be there for other people who are grieving, both before and after a death. Zach works as an inpatient palliative care chaplain at Providence Portland Medical Center. And because that's not quite enough grief... Zach also volunteers as a facilitator in two peer grief support groups here at Dougie Center. Before he moved to Oregon, Zach worked at Dell Children's Medical Center as the pediatric palliative care and oncology chaplain. Professionally, Zach knows a lot about grief, and that education started personally, when he was 21 and his close friend Leanna died in a car accident, a death that continues to shape his life. Zach is funny and thoughtful when it comes to what he's learned about how to show up as a human for other humans who are grieving. He is also generous, as I went into this interview with some facts that were not quite correct. For some reason, I was convinced Zach was a hospice chaplain and not a hospital chaplain, which you'll hear me say in this interview, and you'll also hear as he kindly corrects that misinformation and explains the difference. Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show today and being part of Grief Out Loud. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm super pumped to be here. And I know you work in this field of bereavement as a chaplain. You're also a facilitator in, in a, our peer grief support groups at Dougie Center. But what's your personal connection to, to grief and to this work? Yeah, so... I would say that sort of my my most early experience of grief was probably whenever my grandfather died. Um, and it's actually a really fascinating story from a perspective of like, how do we help kiddos in grief? So I was um I was on an actual month-long mission trip in Panama, like deep in the jungle. I had gone on this trip knowing that my grandfather had Alzheimer's dementia and I knew that he was sick and I knew that there was like this potential that he might not survive until the end of my trip. And so my parents actually sat down and had a conversation with me about how I, how they should approach that and how I wanted to approach that. And I was 13 at the time. And I told them, I told them, I was like, if he dies, I 
don't want to know about it while I'm on the trip. I want you to sort of save that information um, until after I come home. Um, and he did. He ended up dying while I was on the trip. And and it's really funny. I feel like this is one of the things that I've learned throughout my career, too, is that kids know a lot more than we think that they know. Like, I got a phone call and I knew that it had happened. They didn't say it, but like just sort of the the way that they were um, and the fact that they like had called me because that also wasn't normal. Um, I had this like deep sense that that he had died, um, but I didn't that didn't get confirmed until I went back um, home. And so that was sort of my my earliest interaction with grief. But certainly my most poignant interaction with grief and the one that I talk about whenever we begin groups at Dougie is that when I was 21, right after I'd graduated college, one of my really good friends died in a car accident. And there's also just a really interesting story about that as well. Like I I just gotten back from a trip to Italy where I was backpacking with with a friend. We were driving back from Tampa to Jacksonville. And we drove past the car accident that my friend was in. And I didn't realize it until the next couple of days. Um, and I like it clicked in my head and I was like, I drove past a really big accident on the interstate. And so that is that's sort of my my most personal and the one that I guess that impacted me the most. Not that my grand the death of my grandfather didn't impact me, but um that was someone my age, someone from my peer group. And and one that just felt out of order. Yeah, I would say that, that that my personal journey with grief started there. And and I really do think that like that journey has led me to where I am now. Um, I do think that that experience has impacted and shaped the way things have sort of cascaded in my life. I think that, that I carry that experience with me sort of to this day in my work and my volunteer experience with Dougie. Um, and just even who I am as a person out in the world. What did it mean to you to realize you had driven by the accident site? It was pretty wild to think that that, that is what happened. And like, I still to this day, like, I don't know that I can fully confirm that that's that that is what happened. Like, that's what I assume, because it was a really big accident. And it makes it makes all the sense in the world. But it was it was hard because I think that I've had thoughts and I still have thoughts of like, what would have happened if I had stopped? Like if I had known, if I had known that that, that accident across the highway on the other side was was my friend and that m- my friend was still in the car, would I have stopped? Would there have been anything that I could have done? Would I... I don't know. Like, I I do have a lot of questions of like, what if I had known in the moment? And I think that that's sort of the most persistent thought that I have around like that particular particularity of like that story. What that would have been like or what that would have played out for you if that really was if you had stopped or. Yeah. Or like, so so my friend Leanna, who died in the car accident um, at the time, she was dating my really good friend um, and they were essentially engaged um jake and i think that that's the other piece of what ifs is if i had known could i have been there it could i have shown up more for jake than i did and like i I think that as a 21 year old that like knew very little about grief was just sort of getting started in this world 
I don't know how much more I would have been able to show up for Jake, but like, I do wonder like if I, if, if that had been, if that had been a thing, like if I had known would I've shown up in a different way, whenever I think about how this story connects to where I am now, this, like the circumstances are really important for like how I showed up in that situation. So after Leanna died, um, I had actually been reading this book while I was on my trip to Europe. It was like the only book that I took. Um, and it's called Lament for a Son. And it was written by the theologian that was a professor at Harvard. And his name's like Nicholas Volterstorff. And it was just a really raw outpouring of emotion um, in book form about his son that died. And so I just like finished reading this book. And I think that the thing that I connected with so much in this book was just the deep willingness to talk about how hard and how sad he was in this book. And so I posted on Facebook a a, a section of the book that I was like really resonating with in the time after Leanna died and actually led to Leanna's family asking me to come and say a few words at the funeral and like it kind like it it kind of made sense in some ways because like I was going to seminary like I was on this track to be like a church pastor or whatever um which is st- distinctly different than what I do now but like sort of still in the same realm and so they asked me to come and say some words at the funeral and I felt like very unprepared for that like I I was like I don't know like what to say like I don't have like any big words to like make this feel better and I think that like reading that book and sort of what they saw even in my post was not so much that I had the right things to say, but that I just had things to say about my friend that had just died. And so like my little like eulogy thing at the funeral really was, it was just like a list of laments. I just remember writing and talking about all of the things that I was going to miss and all of the things that were going to be different um, and all of the things from the previous summer I'd spent a lot of time with Jake and Leanna because we were all living in Orlando. All of the things that we had done and all of those things that would be just drastically different now. So from a pretty early age, I mean, 21 is pretty young, you were able to tap into this ability to put grief into words, even if it wasn't like a big proclamation of deep wisdom and understanding, but just a willingness to be there and say, this person existed and they're no longer here. And this is why that is so hard and painful. And this is what I'm going to miss. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like, that is, that is sort of one of the attitudes that I've, that I've taken about sort of my work and grief just in general since then. It's just this, this reality that like, there doesn't need to be this big proclamation. There doesn't need to be like this witty thing to say. And it's actually really funny because like now that I'm think- thinking about this and saying this, we had a conversation in one of my groups recently where some of the kids were like, yeah, everybody thinks that like you have to have this like poignant thing to say. And they were all laughing. They're like, we don't like that's not what we need. Like we just kind of need people to be real and human with us. And I think that that's like, that's how I approach my work is that I'm just a human and in, in a room with other humans experiencing super human things like death and dying. You know, one of the other people that I've like really appreciated is this lady named Kate Bowler, who's uh, again, a professor at Duke 
she's written a couple of books. Um, and one of the most recent ones is There's No Cure for Being Human. And it's just this really poignant talk about how this is where we are. Like, and and death is ultimately a part of the human experience. You know, Zach, as we're talking, I'm realizing you might be the first hospice chaplain that we've had on Grief Out Loud. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about like, what is that work? Because I do think chaplain brings to mind a lot of different images and ideas. And I know even for me, like listeners, I'm Zach's in hospital scrubs. And I always had this image of a hospice chaplain being in like a suit and a tie and fancy formal wear. So if you, yeah, just share a little bit about like what the work is. Yeah. Well, first, I guess, um, so I'm actually, I'm not a hospice chaplain. Um, I work with a with an inpatient palliative care team, which is similar in some senses. It's similar in the sense that our team more so than other teams in the hospital is we really do look towards what is meaningful some for someone when they're near at or near the end of their life um, and trying to figure out what feels most important um, whenever it comes to making a plan. And so I will say that I make a, a decent amount of referrals to, of our patients to hospice um, because for a lot of people that feels like a really helpful philosophy and service. But I work particularly in the inpatient setting, which is why I'm wearing scrubs and why there's like a an office, a hospital office behind me. I think if I was working out in the community as more like a hospice chaplain, I might I might dress a little different and I might even get to be at home, which would be great. But So um, my stereotype is not too far off, it sounds like. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's not. And it's funny, like I, so this is like a connection, like just back to what I was saying about earlier about like a human being a human. I actually, I wear scrubs, first of all, because I'm allowed to and I like to wear scrubs because they're comfortable. But also like, I I do think that it human, like I don't wanna say humanizes so much, but like it, it sets this tone and this goes into the piece of like what my work as a chaplain is. Like it sets this tone that like, I really am another member of the medical team. And that's how I see myself. And that's how I hope that patients and families see me. Um, I think you're totally right. There is a, a lot of baggage and a lot of assumptions around the word chaplain. Um, and I think probably the biggest one is that most chaplains are Christian, which I wish that I could dispel that, but it's not it's not totally untrue. My role here in the hospital is to pay attention to spiritual and emotional sort of stuff that is going on um, in people's lives as they experience illness. And particularly, the thing that I find the most meaningful in my work is is sitting in a room with somebody who is trying to make meaning of a situation. Um, and I would say that most of the time, there's very little meaning to be made. And yet, as humans, I think that that's something that we are just so inclined to do, especially whenever someone's really sick, is to try and figure out why is this happening? What is going on? How do we fix it? And that, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like we we want a way out of this awful situation. And like whenever people are talking with our team, it's people are very sick. Um, they either have a lot of different things going on or they have one thing that's that's pretty life-limiting. And so that really is like sort of my role is to is to 
key into to figure out how somebody might be trying to figure out what's going on and how they're making meaning and to support them in that connect them to resources ultimately if that um, if that feels important to them and sometimes that looks like faith communities sometimes that looks like just helping them to talk through what's going on yeah what would you say Zach distinguishes your role from say a social worker or a counselor yeah, I mean, I, I do think that, and particularly on our team, like we have a lot of these conversations that are the social workers, because we have social workers on our team. And so we do a lot of very similar things. Um, we talk a lot about sort of social supports. We talk a lot about um, sort of emotional processing and all of that stuff. I would say the thing, like the the part where I'm a little bit different is that I do have this like very specific education and training in um, spirituality if and when that is a part of somebody's framework for how they're making meaning because I don't that's not always a part of how somebody's making meaning but if it is I do think that there becomes a that is sort of where my role separates um so if we do like if we have a patient who faith, whether it be Christian or Hindu or Buddhist, is a huge part of their life, that's whenever I really sort of excel and shine and am able to sort of hear what's going on and how they're making sense of it through that framework or through that lens. Um, And then there was this video that I watched recently that was like a comic explanation of chaplaincy and it was like the doctor in the comic was like oh well what don't you just uh don't you just say prayers and and hug or something like that and i was like (laughs) it's like just this sort of like caricature of what a chaplain is and it's funny because like i actually find myself praying very little with patients like i do like it if it if it feels right if there's like a very specific um request or need for prayer or if it I've identified sort of through my assessment that prayer is like a huge resource for people. Of course, I will say a prayer and I've been trained to do that. Like I went to, I went to seminary. I know how to, I know how to construct and say a prayer, but it's not, it's not even close to like the first thing that I'm thinking often. Like that's not even, it's not even like the top 10 on like my list of tools that I have in my toolkit. How long have you been in the field? Um, so you're pushing into the thing that I'm absolutely not good at, which is why I'm a hospital <laughs> chaplain, uh, which is math. Um, I graduated in 2016. So like coming up on seven years. Yeah. What do you remember about like your first day or your first week or your first month of stepping into this role? Because you are you're walking into a very delicate, vulnerable time in someone's life. Yeah. Well, okay. So I'll tell you about the first time that I ever went into a hospital room. So like I said, I went to, I went to, to seminary and like my full intention was to be like a pastor in a church and I could probably have four podcast episodes filled on like why that's not where I am now. Um, but I did an internship at a church in Orlando and I was at Disney with my friend Jake, um, who I was just talking about earlier, and no one else on the church staff was in town. Like it was like a Saturday or something, and like nobody else was in town. I was the only person 
on like the pastoral staff that was in town and I was an intern. I was still a junior. I was between my junior and senior year of college. Like, so I wasn't even finished with like undergrad yet. I get a phone call from the past, the lead pastor at the church. And he's like, okay, so -so so-and-so is in the hospital and they need a visit. Um, And I was like, okay. Um, And so I walked into the hospital. This was like I mean, I'm sure that I had been in hospitals, but this is certainly my like earliest like poignant memory of being in a hospital. I walk into this hospital, I have no idea where I'm going. Um, and I find my way up to the ICU. And he was like on co- like isolation precautions. So I had to like put a gown and gloves on. And um, so I walk into the room and I was like, I was pan- like, I was panicking um, because like this felt super uncomfortable. And like, this was like the thing that I was like, I don't know if I want to be a pastor because that means that I'll have to go into hospital rooms and that feels really hard. Um, and here I am now. And as soon as I walked into the room, there was nobody else in the room. And the guy, I think that it was a, it was a man um, and he was very sick. And I think, I think that he was on a ventilator. Um, And so I walk into the room and as soon as I walked in, I just got this like sense of peace. Like, I don't know what it was, but like, I just felt more calm whenever I was like actually in this space. And I remember I sat and I said a prayer and then I just left. Like I was there for like five minutes maybe. And I was also panicking afterwards. And I was like, I don't know if I did the right thing. Like, I don't know what, like, what was what I was supposed to do. But I think whenever I reflect on this story, like just that sense of peace that I had whenever I was in the room and just like the, the reality of like, I was witness to what was happening and I was, you know, did he know I was there? I'm not sure. Like, but I was like, I was like, I, I was there. I showed up for this guy um, that was very sick. I'm not sure if I answered your question, like, but like that was sort of my earliest memory of being in a hospital. Um, and I think whenever I look back, I like am able to say, oh, I probably could have known then that like this, that this might be somewhere where I ended up. I don't think that if you had asked me like in the even like months to year after that happened, if that was like a good experience for me. But like looking back now, I'm like, yeah, it was okay. Like it, it was okay. So you went from panic to peace to panic, and that was a glimmer looking back of leading you to where you are now. Yeah. And I think that like, uh, so sort of after after that, like I, I did an internship during my last year of grad school in the, at, a VA, at the VA hospital in Durham. And that's whenever I really like started to see that like this is work that I could do. And I actually think that like one one of the things that I love about my job um, that I don't think that people often realize about hospital chaplains is that like one of the roles of a chaplain is to care for the staff in the hospital just as much as we're caring for patients. Um, And that was the piece that I always was looking for um, and why I didn't think that I would be a hospital child. Cause like, I really like to build relationships over time. And like, that is one of the things that I really enjoyed about being in a church was like the opportunity to get to know people over the sort of course of their life. And my interactions and caring for staff is where I found that sort of in my work as a hospital chaplain. And that's like one of the things that I really love is that I get to, and like 
that's grief work too. Like I have sat with so many nurses and doctors uh, sort of processing and reeling from the death of a patient or from a really hard encounter or from just you name it, all of the hard stuff that we see in healthcare. Like I have been able to sit and witness um, and be witness to people's emotional processing of all of these things. You know, I think we're in 2023 and there's still a lot yet that hasn't settled in, I think, about the last three years. And I'm thinking of you, 2020, 2021, 2022, and 2023 being in healthcare, supporting healthcare workers who, I mean, they have been through it in the last three years and you're right alongside them. And I wonder, like, I know it's kind of early to be reflective, but if you do have any kind of early reflections on how the pandemic shifted things for folks that you were working with. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think my big thing is that it did, it like, it just, it did feel just starkly different. Whenever, like, early in the pandemic, like, I feel like there were lots of, like, talking points about, like, oh, this is, like, you work in a hospital, you should be used to this. And, like, I just, like, like, no. COVID, particularly, like, in an adult hospital, in an adult ICU, like, it was, it was traumatic. And, like, I... I think that we're like slowly starting to come out of it. Like, but it was, it was bad. Um, and it was really hard to watch. And I did a lot, like I did a lot of just like hanging out on the ICU, just checking on people um, and just letting people know that I was there. Like, cause it was like for a lot, like the, one of the hardest things is for a lot of the people, like there just wasn't anything that we could do, which was also just another new thing in healthcare. Like we just didn't have a way to deal with this. One of my other re- reflections is how that sort of galvanized the, like the healthcare like field in a way like it it brought us all closer together because there were a lot of points where it felt like it was sort of the healthcare team against the world you could talk a lot about a, a lot about sort of why that is and sort of what was going on in the media and politics and all of this stuff about sort of why it felt that way but it really did sort of feel like we all like everybody in the hospital needed to have everybody else's back um and I think that that in particular for for our work is really fascinating, interesting to me because palliative care always has been this sort of like outlier in the medical model of like our job is to listen to and advocate for what's important to patients and families, even if that is sort of against what the rest of the medical world and the medical team thinks or feels it was really interesting how like during covid i think that we sort of got even our team got swallowed up into that like idea of like it's us against the world and i think one of the most interesting things sort of as we come out has been relearning how to navigate this and like remembering we do have this like very special place where whenever we hear important things from patients and families it's our job to really relay that to the mess the rest of the medical team regardless of sort of whatever they're thinking or feeling or saying 
I feel like we're going to have to check back in with you in about three more years just to see because I feel like <laughs> there's a certain way of engaging and coping when the crisis is unfolding. And that doesn't stop when the crisis is not as urgent anymore. And then there's the fallout. And that can last for days and weeks and months and years. And I think it takes a while for us to even sort through, identify how it has changed us. So we'll have to stay tuned. We'll check back in maybe in 2025. <laughs> put me put me back <laughs> on the schedule. <laughs> and Zach, I know you're super familiar with the idea that grief is really different for everyone and so unique. And you are supporting people in your paid employment prior to they to a death. And then you're supporting people through Ducky Center after a death has occurred in their family. And I imagine there's some overlap in those two roles. I'm curious in your experience as a professional and as a volunteer, like what are a few things that come to mind knowing that grief is different for everyone, but that sort of in general people need in their grief? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, so I want to start by saying sort of that one of the reasons why I, uh, I mean, I've, I've known about Dougie Center for a long time. Whenever I was working in a pediatric hospital, I referred Dougie Center resources to families often. But one of the things that was really important to me coming to volunteer at Dougie Center whenever I moved here to Portland was that my role now looks a little bit different than it did before. And so I don't have as much of the sort of longitudinal follow-up with families like I did in my previous role. And I actually was looking for a way to remind myself that like grieving people still like they exist, they still go on with their lives. And that like, I want to say, I want to say, okay, because I do think that that's like a, that's like an okay thing to say is that like grieving people are okay. Like they, they're still out here living. And I just like, don't ever see that in like my work, my like paid employment. <laughs> like I don't, I like we send people out on hospice or people die here in the hospital. And like, I just never really see or hear from or talk to their families ever again. Dougie Center was a way for me to like round out that work and remember that like grieving is a really big important part of this and like one of one of the things that I appreciate about this role is that and one of the reasons why I think that palliative care is so important is to facilitate good healthy bereavement we're talking about limiting regret whenever it comes to medical decision making and trying to help families make decisions that that make the most sense that that feel most in line with sort of their values and that help them be as okay whenever someone dies as they can be I, I, one of the physicians that I worked with at Dell Children's, which was the hospital that I was at before this, um, would often say to families, we just don't want you to regret anything. And so we want to to have these really hard, tough conversations so that whatever happens, that we limit that regret as much as possible. I think the question was like about people grieving differently, right? I think I lost it a little bit in talking about the thing that I wanted to say. <laughs> I was just curious if there were any like through lines of things that you think about in terms of what people who are grieving need or what they say that they need. Um, I, I So I think that the big thing is just like people to show up 
in volunteering and, and before whatever I was doing bereavement groups, like, I think that just for their people to show up is like one of the biggest things. And to show up just again, like as humans, like as, as a, as another human being, I feel like, I feel like the list of like things, like my list of like things that like people don't want is the thing that like comes up in my mind the most readily because like, I just hear the, the sort of story after story of like, Oh my gosh, this person did this and this person did this. And I think that like a lot of those are just failures of people to like truly just show up as themselves as, as a human being trying to support another human being approaching approaching like a bereaved person with empathy which feels like the least that we can do um and one of the things that for me I'll speak for myself has been the most important is sort of figuring out Brené Brown talks a lot about the the very distinct difference between sympathy and empathy um and being able to to figure out where that line is and how those two things really ultimately do do different things um I think that that is empathy is what most people that I know that are grieving are looking for. Um, they're not looking for somebody to feel sorry for them. They're looking for somebody to come alongside them and to be realistic about the thing that's happened. Most bereaved people I know want people to acknowledge their loss. They don't want people to like act like it didn't happen. Um, and particularly for people that like know them. Not not like the stranger on the street, like that field. <laughs> I've got lots of stories about like people, people like just random strangers, like trying to make conversation and asking questions that sort of bring up um, grief. But especially for people that are close to them, like to actually acknowledge that um, that something is different here. I remember sitting in a grief support group with with a group of parents, adult children who had lost children. Um, and there was just this conversation about all of them at one time or another. Um, they were young, they were younger families. Um, their parents, like the parent, the grandparents of the child that would have died, tried to act like that it didn't happen. And they were all like, it, it was like this, it was weird that it was this universal experience of all of these families that like, their grand like that these that their parents acted like like tried to like ignore the fact that it happened they were like that felt awful like like i i understand that it's hard to talk about i understand that like this that you don't think you have the words to say but like don't try to act like it didn't happen um so yeah i guess acknowledgement empathy and just showing up for people are sort of the big the big three things that i would say that that i can draw a line through between all of this You've mentioned many times this idea of being a human with other humans, baseline minimum for supporting folks in grief. And I've said that many times and heard that many times. And today I'm sitting with a little twist on it of learning how to be human in the face of someone's humanity. Whereas when I hear like be human with other humans, it might just be like, well, I like this aspect of you being human. And I like this aspect of you being human. But like, the reality of the humanity of having gone through a heartbreaking loss or death of some sort is that humanity is going to show up in a lot of different ways and that we can practice being present and comfortable and available for that humanity, whether that humanity looks like 
telling stories and laughing together, if that humanity looks like staring silently out at the trees because there's nothing to say, or talking about the regret and the guilt and the shame that people experience. And I, I think some of us, myself included, are more comfortable with the maybe telling funny stories and laughing, maybe sitting in silence, but getting into some of those more challenging, painful aspects. It, it requires practice. I really like that idea of practice. One of the developmental psychologists that like I rely a lot on for like my own like understanding of of this is Donald Winnicott. And Donald Winnicott talks like about how we have these capacities and these capacities are things that we have that we have and it's how we're learning to be with other people. It's how we're learning to be ourselves and all of this stuff. And it is really about practice. And he talks a lot about play and play is like ultimately for him how we learn to be human. And it, it, like back to the this idea of practice and and another sort of thing that I think what bereaved or grieving people really need and deserve is like is for people also to listen. And so like I think that that's another part of being human is like being able to show up in a space and like if someone tells you this is not how I need you to be, or even if they don't if they aren't able to say say the words, like maybe even like being able to pick up on it, but like really listening, because I think that that's another like universal experience of grieving people that I've, that I've heard is like people just not listening, a grieving person saying, Hey, this is what I need. Or this is, this is like, I, I can't deal with this right now. And then people just not paying attention to that. So like being willing to try something and if it doesn't work being able to pivot and like do something different I think is also another huge thing and that like goes along with practice too I don't think that I was born being as as adept to sit with like hard things as I am right now it's something that I've learned how to do and I've learned how to do it because I've failed like a lot like I've I've said stupid things many times I have made people cry. I've made things worse. Like I've done the wrong thing plenty of times. The thing about that is that you have to be willing to do the wrong thing in order to figure out how to do the right thing. And I think what limits a lot of people, both like that I know that like are trying to show up for people and what I'm hearing from grieving people is that a lot of people aren't even willing to try. I hear stories about people who are hurt about friends who haven't shown up for them. It's it's like, it is sometimes like, oh, they did this bad thing and they messed up. But more often it's that they keep messing up. It's not just that they messed up once, but that they keep messing up. But more so than that, I think that I hear more pain and grief from grievers about the people that just didn't even show up. Um, and I think that that people don't show up because they're so scared. Like we're locked into like this fear that we're going to stay or do something wrong. And like if I had a message for people that are trying to support people in grief, it's like, don't be scared that you're going to do something wrong because you are like you are like you're going to say something dumb. You're going to make something worse at some point and you're never going to learn how to get better unless you start trying. <laughs> 
one of the grief, like one of the grief podcasts that um, I listen to quite often um, has a, has a bad word in the name, but it's let um, the host is this social worker named Lisa Kefauver. Um, and she actually does a line of grief cards that I like, those are the grief cards that I send to people. And one of them one of, like the front of the card says like I a lot of people probably aren't reaching out because they're afraid they'll say something stupid and on the inside of the card it says you know me I've never been afraid of saying something <laughs> stupid and it's like it's just this like really beautiful poignant like idea of I, I, I've resolved that I'm gonna show up and if like if I do something wrong and I need to learn and change and be different then like I'm gonna learn and change and be different but like it's not gonna stop me from showing up for someone thank you for that reminder for me and all of our listeners today that, you know, the thing, even if we don't know what to say or we're going to say the wrong thing, it's better to show up and do something than to disappear and do nothing. So I appreciate your message and thank you for, you know, being on the show. Thank you for the volunteering you do at Dougie Center for the work you're doing with the palliative team. Yeah. Just grateful for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been awesome. And listeners out there, again, I say it each and every time, but thank you for being part of our listening community, for making the show mean what it does. Always grateful for those of you who reach out to me directly, which you can do at griefoutloud at dougie.org, which is D-O-U-G-Y dot That's our website where you can find information about our local programming, all of our free downloadable resources, and each and every episode of Grief Out Loud. Excited to share, as always, that our podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Stephan Endowment Fund. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. 